You're listening to an ACA podcast. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations as the sovereign custodians of the land on which we meet this evening. We extend our respect to ancestors and elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who join us here this evening. My name is Miriam Kelly, I'm a curator here at ACCA, and I'm a curator of the uh, current exhibition Feedback Loops. We are pleased to welcome you tonight to the final uh, public program associated with this exhibition, which we are co-presenting tonight with the Sino-Futurist program developed by independent curator Matt Spispa for Asia Topa. ACCA extends uh, our thanks to our engagement partner, PR Asia, and our colleagues at the Arts Centre Melbourne and Sydney Meyer Fund for their collaborative approach to all programming associated with feedback loops. And for this program, we also extend uh, our acknowledgement of support of University of Melbourne. The exhibition Feedback Loops, for those who haven't yet seen it, presents six immersive installations that explore the material and digital worlds of our past, present and speculative futures. The work of the six artists in Feedback Loops are in part informed by the aesthetics of technologies that have emerged over the lifetimes of the artists, all of whom were born in the 1980s, as well as an interest in the ethics of new materialist or post-humanist philosophies in rich and varied ways. These engagements with philosophies and technologies, particularly those uh, in the game motion capture our works of Liu Yang, the CGI collaborations of Tian Zhou Chen and Andrew Thomas Huang, and the artificial intelligence programs of Sahaj Rahel, uh, which will appear scrolling uh, behind me, uh, or behind the speakers tonight, uh, were prompted the consideration for this panel in discussion with Matt Spispa. Matt's Sino-Futures program for Asia Topa sought to offer uh, a view of emerging technological, social and online movements impacting contemporary art, art practices in China and was uh, set to showcase new works by Liu Yang with collaborators Meta Objects, who are here tonight, uh, as well as by Howie Lee and Alex Wang. All of these programs have currently been postponed uh, due to the travel bans, but we look forward to welcoming those programs later in the year. As such, uh, we'll be hearing from Liu Yang via sound excerpts uh, and in typical Yang fashion, as someone who has often described themselves as living on the internet, uh, is moderated through a computer-generated voice. I will um, briefly introduce uh, each of the speakers um, and before handing over to moderator um, for tonight, Ray Johnson. Um, Liu Yang, who I've just mentioned, is a graduate of New Media Arts Department of the Academy of Arts in Hangzhou, widely known nationally and internationally for video, performance, installation and gaming works, Yang often works in collaboration with performers, designers, and experimental composers. Since 2012, Yang has presented work nationally and internationally in galleries, as well as festivals of science, technology, and gaming. In 2013, Yang created her first art-based computer game, and in 2015, presented a major installation at the Chinese pavilion of the 56th Venice Biennale. Becky Suchen uh, Freeman is an artist, creative producer, working across audio, visual, and interactive mediums. Within her uh, music project, Su Chen, Becky explores themes of memory, identity, the human relationship to technology. Her most recent album, Losing Linda, explores the experience of loss in the digital age and is accompanied by a digital, uh, digital ecosystem and ghostly apparition in the form of Linda, who you can chat to online. As an audio producer and sometime music supervisor for art processes, Becky collaborates with programmers, designers and storytellers to meaningfully incorporate technology into visitor experiences for art galleries, museums and other cultural organisations. 
Dr. Claire Roberts is an art historian specialising in modern and contemporary Chinese art and cultural flows between Asia and Australia. Dr. Roberts is an Australian Research Council Future Fellow in the School of Culture Communication at the University of Melbourne and Associate Professor of Art History. She has published widely on Chinese art and visual and material culture and has curated numerous exhibitions in Australia and internationally as curator of the Museum of Chinese and Australian History Melbourne's Senior Curator of Asian Arts at the Powerhouse Museum, oh sorry, <laughs> in Melbourne, and then Senior Curator of Asian Arts at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney, as well as independently. Dr. Roberts' current ARC uh, Future Fellowship project uh, focuses on the international context of modern and contemporary Chinese art. Getting there. Uwe uh, Eklin, Professor Uwe Eklin, has worked for more than 20 years in the fields of artificial intelligence, optimization, and data mining. He is currently head of School of uh, Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne, and prior to this role was vice president at the University of Nottingham uh, in uh, Nottingham Ningbo, China. Is that correct? Uh, and head of the School of Computer Science at the University of Nottingham. He has authored over 200 papers in leading international journals and conferences and participated in over 100 uh, conference program committees. Since 2007, he has been associate editor of the leading journal uh, in his field, uh, IEEE, -E -E, Transactions of Evolutionary Com Computation. Uh, Professor Aikland has also served for many years as a st strategic advisor for artificial intelligence to the UK research councils and government. And our moderator, Ray Johnson, uh, for tonight's panel, is a multi-award winning STEM journalist with almost a decade of experience appearing on every national television and radio news program in Australia. Ray is a leading commentator on all things science, technology, video games, and is the first ever science and technology editor for NITV across their online TV and radio platforms. Uh, a host on both That Startup Show and The Point, Ray is also the co-host of uh, Take It Black, NITV's podcast exploring the stories behind the news. Ray is also a founding mentor with the Working Lunch Program, supporting underrepresented entry-level people in games. Ray uh, is a part of the prestigious Brains Trust, Leonardo's Group for the Science Gallery in Melbourne, and a mentor uh, for Science Media Centres Australia's Indigenous Science Program and the Fed a Federal Council Delegate for the MEAA. Please. <laughs> uh, welcome our panel for this evening. Thank you. Wow, what an amazing introduction. We all know so much about each other now. You're all so accomplished. This is incredible. Yuridu Murang Maji, Ray Johnston, Yuanadi, Wiradjuri Yinabaladu. My name is Ray Johnston. I'm a Wiradjuri woman. I'm also, as you heard, the science and technology editor at NITV and also SBS. And we're here today to discuss the role of new and emergent technologies in the visual arts and contemporary culture. And the world's first artists and just were the sovereign First Nations peoples of this continent. These rich and diverse cultures survive in spite of attempts to erase them, demonstrating the power and resilience of the world's oldest continuing cultures. So while we discuss what it means to live and work and create in the prehistory of the future, which is a phrase that I love, I would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations whose unceded land it is that we are being here on today. And I pay my deepest respects to their elders past and present and I extend that respect to any of my First Nations brothers or sisters, aunties or uncles that might be here in the room with us tonight. 
Now, I am joined by an incredible panel up here this evening, and there will be an opportunity later on for you to ask your own questions, which I'm sure are much more clever than anything that I've managed to come up with. So keep something in the back of your mind, and when it is time to raise your hand, please do. Oh, and if you would like to join in on social media, please feel free. And we are using the hashtag feedback loops tonight if you want to have a discussion on there. Now, I did speak with Lu Yang before today's panel. It was a very interesting conversation via email and videos, and I'm going to actually hear those responses for the first time today. Now, I asked Lu Yang why they have chosen the medium of video games to create art, and this was their response. I have spent many years working in 3D animation, especially in the rendering elements of 3D work. Compared to the production process in traditional 3D software, which layers different effects on top of each other, the real-time rendering from game engines is much more intuitive. The game engine platform allows me to create a more seamless and impromptu feeling in my artwork. By using game engine software you are able to inhabit a three-dimensional space instead of a two-dimensional one. This puts you fully inside the work and adjusts the visual perspective for both artists and audience. The use of game engine software is also full of randomness rather than a simple fixed or static representation. I love working with this randomness and letting the audience explore new things. Now to the regular layman mainstream audience that's working, walking into an art gallery off the street, they might see technology as quite separate from art, and I wanted to ask the panel how common it is for them in their work to see strong connections drawn between the two. Maybe I'll start by reminding us um, of our histories. <laughs> um, Ray, you alluded to that, but I, I guess um, it depends how we define technology, and I guess technology has been around for a long time. We have a very particular understanding of what technology is today. But I guess you could say that artists have always been kind of working at the forefront of their materials, their media. Um, and uh, listening to Lu Yang, I was, you know, and, you know, the evocation of, you know, the attraction of, of working kind of um, in, in three dimensions. I guess, say, in Chinese painting, the artist thought that they were working in three dimensions too. I mean, you were invited to enter into the landscape. And, and the whole format, if you look at formats, we might think of it old-fashioned now, but the, the hand scroll, it's filmic. You unroll it, you know, section by section, frame by frame, and you experience it. Um, so that might be a nine, you know, 10th century hand scroll. So we have, um, obviously, technology as we understand it today is very different, but those ideas of seeking immersion, seeking to create other worlds in which we might explore in a visual kind of sense, I think are quite old, have been around for a very long time. Okay, so maybe I can add a perspective from computer science. So I never really thought about them being very separate because when we solve problems, we have to be very creative. So 
okay, we, we might want to solve a real problem, but to do that, we have to create a model of the world, a model of the problem. We have to program a computer. That's a very creative process, actually. It may be a language, but it's just like another language, so we have to find a, a way to explain all these things. So for me, it's always been very creative and more like an art, actually. And um, especially in the area I work, artificial intelligence, we don't really know yet how to do these things. There is no rules yet. So we have to be very flexible and creative. Um, yeah, and I would say uh, I feel like listening to Lou, it's about finding the tools for your creative expression. So sometimes that will involve a lot of obvious technologies and sometimes it might not. And, or sometimes technology, contemporary technology might be like referenced on a conceptual uh, level, but maybe through the execution you might not necessarily need that kind of technology. I, that might sound really vague, but um, yeah, it's kind of, I guess, it's now so much a fabric of the mediums which we all work in and absorb content and media. Um, so it's hard to separate the two, but definitely I'm working at the intersection of in art galleries using technology to try and deepen engagement with artworks by adding a music layer, but the technology is smart and it knows where people are in the gallery. So that's a way, but that's like an invisible way of using technology. And then, you know, there's artists who want to really reference the kind of, um, I guess, bring out, find the flaws and the mistakes and the humanness about technology and bring that to the, the forefront of their artistic expression too. So, um, yeah, I think that it's hard for me to think about them as separate as well. So, are there particular technologies that best lend themselves to creating art rather than, you know, even if you're using a particular program for something like, like building a spreadsheet, you know, not many people are going to call that art, but I suppose that could be used as art in a way as well. I'm going to think myself in circles here. Are there some tools that are just easier to create art with? I think you can make art out of anything. Like, it depends what, what you're trying to say and how creative you are at, at using those things, but... Um, I can't speak for, other, I'm a, primarily a musician, but I mean, I'm using technology all the time, if, just to even like, document the thing that I'm making. Um, but, and talking about spreadsheets as well, I love spreadsheets. I use spreadsheets <laughs> all the time. I'm, I'm constantly making spreadsheets to kind of try and get some ideas and make a plan and kind of find the connections and patterns and then kind of translate that into to something else. So. Yeah, what were you, you were going to say something? Well, one thing I wanted to say now or later, maybe, I'm not sure, I'll, I'll sprinkle it in now. I mean, there's a bit of a misunderstanding sometimes about what technology is used for. So the idea that, oh, okay, let's program the technology to create art, that's not really how I see this. I think if we want to create a connection between technology and art, then we need to give the artist a new tool. So the technology becomes a tool for the artist. I think that's really the way. So with AI, for example, I don't want an AI that composes music. That's not really interesting. Well, we can try that as a bit of a game. What we really want to do is give the artist a new tool, a new instrument, an AI instrument or something, and they can create some music. So that's how I see it. Yeah. Well, I asked Lu Yang what specific technologies they're using to create their work, and this was their response. Anyone 
The experience my audience receive is different from anything I've planned or hoped for. I can't determine their takeaways from my art. Different people experience different things and get different content. In recent years, I have started using motion capture a lot. Recently, I started using facial expression capture, as well as some game engines etc. I've always used digital media as my main source of creation. So Becky, I wanted to ask you how your use of technology in what you're creating has changed over time. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. I definitely do use te technology just as a tool and try many different kinds of technologies to see what might get me to where I want to go. Um, and uh, it's kind of just like what will get me from A to B the quickest, the shortest path to being able to ex express that thing. So I think, you know, from my perspective, I'm also born in the 80s as well. I didn't really have as many um, role models in the technology space that I could obviously understand and look up to and learn from and think that maybe I could be the person in the driver's seat. Um, but in 2010, I went to a, a Red Bull Music Academy and there was a whole spectrum of artists that I was able to hear from and participate in studio workshops with and actually realized that I was actually producing these ideas and directing my own projects all along. So then I had the confidence then to just like invest in software and invest in hardware and teach myself the, the tools a bit better and, and just have that confidence. So um, I guess I'm a bit obsessed. If you, if you open the can of worms of talking to me about audio technology, then <laughs> we'll be here for a very long time. It sometimes sounds like another language, I think. But um, I'm super obsessed about it, actually. I, <laughs> I get very, very deep into like, oh, you can, you can do that, and constantly getting um, new hardware, but then also realizing that there might be some newer things that could be. Uh, my current issue is how to get my analog synths on a plane to America to play some shows, all right? So there's a new one that's like a soft, you know, soft synth version, blah, 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 blah. So I'm constantly troubleshooting these things and ending up always with my hardware. But um, that being said, yeah, I'm just constantly like assessing and trying new things and excited for, um, for how I might be able to use that as inspiration or maybe as a direct tool. Um, but yeah, I think, participating and not being afraid is, is definitely key, and knowing that a lot of people are just figuring it out and experimenting as well. It sounds like you have some similar experiences <laughs> with Lu Yang, because I did ask them what challenges or barriers they've experienced with accessing the right programs even to work with, and this was their response. To use these technical tools to create art, you must always learn the latest software and technologies. Of course, if you think linearly, these technologies are too in-depth to be learned by one person. Therefore, many of my works are completed by cooperating with corresponding technical companies and experts. But first, you still need to have at least some basic knowledge of these technologies, so that you can communicate during the collaboration process. Now, there was a mention there of the collaboration process, which I'm fascinated by. Uh, Dr. Roberts, in your experience, is it common to see 
the artist and the tools as a collaboration or are they just tools? I think collaboration also has a very long kind of history. Um, I think artists, um, you know, before, before the kind of stage of the hero artist, the individual artist creating there um, as a kind of genius figure, of course there were um, the contexts for that art to happen in, whether it be if we go right back to, you know, a religious kind of context or a court context. Um, and then if we fast forward um, to the post-1949 period, um, it was desirable to collaborate. I mean, you know, there, there was a sense that the individual artist didn't matter. It was really the content of the work and, and working as a collective that, that would pr produce the kind of, you know, desirable work. Um, of course, you know, uh, fast forwarding even further, um, then I think, you know, once, um, um, you know, technology and, um, you know, sophisticated kind of programming is involved and um, sophisticated, um, you know, machinery and equipment, um, I think there, you know, particularly in art schools, I think there is a move towards a lab kind of a, a kind of um, training and so, um, uh, you know, individuals are encouraged to kind of work together and problem solve together. Um, and so I think this has become a very kind of normal, um, you know, expected kind of way of, of, of creating kind of complex work, you know, to, re to reflect and respond to, you know, very complex times. Becky, do you see the programs and technology you work with as a collaborator or as a tool? Well, I've never been asked that before. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'd, it's really nice to think of the, uh, the things that I work with as collaborators, definitely working within, you know, their limitations or, or the, yeah, their, <laughs> their limitations. I'm thinking of um, a piece of gear that I have at the moment that I just have some weird attachment to and personifying it probably and being like, but I really need you. And, you know, I, I think that um, it's really nice. It's a nice thought to think of it as collabor collaborative relationship with the, with the tools. Um, yeah, I want to sit with that thought for a little while. <laughs> Professor Oakland, uh, some of the technology that is commonly used today can be a little bit difficult to get a hold of. It can be expensive. You can need expensive equipment in order to access it and use it. But what, in your experience, can people access and use that might even be free or generally a little bit more accessible than, a, than other programs? OK. So I would say on the hardware side, on the software side, the barriers have been lowered a lot. I mean, everybody has a high-performance computer in their pocket. <laughs> this, you know, this is pretty good. And a lot of software is free, open source software. You know, you get a lot of good stuff these days. It doesn't cost you any money. I think the difficulty is actually using it. And um, as an educator, we, we're trying to think about this at the moment. How could we train artists better to use computers, computer software? And what would be, what, what other skills that people really want? It's probably not programming. That's too low level. So what other skills? And how could we, you know, that, that teamwork that you want to establish, what skills do you actually need? I'm really interested in that question. And if you have an answer, you know, please tell me, because we want to put on such a program in the future. We're trying something a little bit at the moment, so we're working with the VCA, and we put on a bit of a program, but we want to put on more in the future, and I want to know what's the gap, what, what do artists want to learn? Yes. So, 
Video games have been around for decades, obviously, but I asked Luyang if they would consider them an emerging technology in the mainstream art world, and this was their response. Things never develop in the way they are intended, so making too many assumptions about what this technology is used for will only interfere with your own creation. I don't think too much about what is popular now. I just think about which tool is most suitable for what I want to create. All technological means are just tools for creating my works. If you create works just to try out the tools, it will definitely fail because technology is always being updated or replaced. The most advanced tools now will always become mature and ancient in a few years time. I tend to focus on a specific technology so I can explore all the possibilities this tool has for my work. So I'd like to put that same question to the panel. Would you consider video games as an emerging technology in the mainstream art world? I think I got a PS4 this summer and um, PlayStation. Anyway, I haven't played video games since I was a teenager before that. Like, dabbled in seeing what was kind of coming out and excited, but knew that it was going to be like a, a hole that I might never come out of. Um, it's kind of true. Like, um, yeah, I'm, I'm super impressed with the world building. It's always been there for video games. I don't think it's necessarily like new it's just been constantly evolving with the times and what's available but maybe the place and the space has changed so that people um, could maybe see it like on the same level as um, cinema like it's f as an art form maybe it's today's cinema it could be because so much about cinema has changed you know it, it was a product of the technology of film film, 16 mil, 35 mil film and all this kind of stuff. So video games feels very current now. It's almost like that kind of multi-platform or, or really interactive choose your own adventure um, uh, kind of led storytelling where you are actually playing the role of another character with the right story. It can really build empathy amongst people. And I think that's a really strong tool. Like if more, maybe more so than when you're sitting passively watching a film. But when a video game, you're actually in making choices and often these are moral kind of choices for a character, living through them, and that can really change you. And that can't be underestimated, I think, about video games. So maybe I'm thinking of them a little differently because I've noticed with the game market being more open to indie game developers the storytelling is much more nuanced and interesting to me um, and emotional, I guess, and I'm kind of like, wow, this is really powerful, yeah. Well, funnily enough, when we talked with the VCA about creating a program, games was the first thing that came to mind. But I think we mean something different from the classic computer games, right? So, I mean, what I like about games, the idea about games, is it's interactive. I think that's what is powerful, but how can art interactive? Don't you run against the artist wanting it to be consumed in a particular way? So how do we get, how do, how do we do that? Customized art? <laughs> Is that possible? Um, 
I was just going to say, I mean, games have become so normalized, you know, for so many people, so many generations. So then that, that presents a great challenge, I guess, for artists who uh, enter into that space. I mean, how do they, I mean, you know, there are so many, I mean, I'm not a gamer really, but there are so many um, products or, you know, games, it seems, that are out there. I mean, how can you add to that kind of field? I mean, clearly people are doing that and, um, you know, in, in very compelling ways, but I think it does present interesting challenges in terms of art and, uh, you know, um, popular culture and um, certainly kind of, yeah, forces us to um, think about kind of the medium in interesting ways and are there any boundaries any longer? Yeah, I was just going to say it's funny how you would talk about and, yeah, can you be more than a passive um, passive person in that experience of art. Well, in a game, you're definitely playing a more active role. There might be a lot of artistry in the game. There's like a fixed amount of pathways that it can possibly take and stuff, but receiving an artist statement is still yeah, a very different kind of experience. So this question of can you customize art and then what you were saying before about using AI to produce music or is it a tool for musicians? I think these are all really interesting things and an artist who I supported recently across the road at the recital center, Holly Herndon, who some people might know, um, I felt like we, we kind of had interesting conversations on this topic because I was using technology more as a conceptual springboard to like respond to AI technology with my character that I created, a digital doppel of myself. Um, Holly and Matt Dreisvers were using it as a means to create their work and we both have very different results and to, I think there's, it's still technically on a conceptual level because they didn't actually um, complete this uh, uh, self-sufficient AI musical being as yet. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting one. I think that, that that'll be a point of um, discussion for the next several years, probably. Now, Liu Yang's work focuses on the possibility of living and working online through an avatar. And I asked them to tell me a little bit more about that. The question you are asking me may as well be your own feelings when playing the game, so it's difficult to answer. The internet may be a more equal platform than reality, it's like a platform for communicating with consciousness. In this digital space, people can hide elements of themselves such as gender, appearance, characteristics, age, nationality, or cultural background. All of which are easily perceived in the real world. I see it as more of a platform for thought exchange where we abandon our social assumptions and the physical realities of human flesh. So I do have some final questions for the panel here based on that statement, and then I'll be throwing to you in the audience for some questions. So please think of something that you would like to know uh, and have your hand ready to raise, and I'll be 
not throwing, but passing this microphone over towards you. So I wanted to ask the panel what your thoughts are on this statement and if that reflects the reality of the internet for you in your experience. Maybe I start. Um, there's something called net neutrality. Have you heard of this concept? So this idea that everybody has equal access to the internet. And I think that's under threat these days, especially with some large corporations getting increasing market share. So I'm not convinced anymore. This is as, <laughs> as simple as it sounds like. More subscription internet than, uh, than equal access internet then. I would tend to agree. Um, maybe the early days, the naive kind of, the, <laughs> the naive days of jumping in a chat room in the early 90s are long gone. Um, and there's many different, you know, darker corners of the web and, and then, you know, the reduction of information and just the reductive nature of online communication between different communities and groups and between political parties and public, it's, it's not, no longer such a pure thing. It's like a dumping ground for, yeah. Facebook's humanity. ruining democracy, that <laughs> yeah. whole deal, yeah. I mean, like, and then, you know, like, just simple pleasures of when you actually talk to someone on the phone or go meet up and see someone in person. Um, it's undeniable how there is, a, you know, a lot missing with the way that we use the internet to get information from each other these, these days, I think. Yeah. In some ways, it's more attractive to present your true self in person than it is to hide on the internet, in a sense. Yeah, I think maybe more meaningful to actually show up, show up to something, you know, and like everyone here came to see people talk, um, which is, you know, it's not insignificant. A lot of people would just be like, oh, I can read that on the internet. But it's a different experience when you're face to face with people and there's a lot of other communicating going on. Mm. Um, I guess Lu Yang is expressing a utopian kind of um, <laughs> idea, something that you know we didn't manage to kind of realize. But I mean, maybe another another thing. I mean, it is interesting to um, consider what he said, you know, in the context of a of a place like China, you know, where um, I think, um, or not only China, but um, you know, a number of kind of or many places around the world where. I think for, for some people um, it is convenient to kind of feel as though there is a space where they don't have to reveal anything and, or everything about themselves all of the time, even though that's increasingly becoming an impossibility. So there's a, a kind of profound paradox there um, as well. Um, but I can see the attraction of that idea um, and something that you know some people might find you know it, important to hang on to or as a way of, um, you know, finding some space, you know, that may be more difficult in other kind of scenarios. You know, so I think, um, yeah, that's... What, what they're provoking. describing kind of reminds me of the early days of World of Warcraft, where there was no voice chat, no one really knew if you're a boy or a girl or where you were or how old you were, you were just playing together. And you were whoever you presented yourself as and whoever you said you were. And yeah, I, I feel like that response is a little bit of a, a hark back to those days, as you said. Now, does anyone in the audience have a question that they would like to ask of this panel? Excellent, I will. 
Hey, um, so obviously Lou's work um, and quite a few of the people in this exhibition really responds to the body or bodies, um, you know, like these formations in space that we travel around in all the time. Um, but I wondered if maybe any of you would like to respond on what you think the links are between the body and kind of digital technology and how maybe they're often not explored in, that, in our ideas of digital technology. And like um, we were saying, there's that sense that there's something hidden, but maybe what do you think is not hidden or, or what do you think is hidden, but we can really analyze about those links. I only want to jump in here. We, as part of Asia Topa, we're doing uh, an installation in uh, the University of Melbourne uh, on Parkville. If you have time this week, do come and see us, especially Thursday and Friday between 5 and 6. It's about AI, emotion detection, and Asian performance. And we're trying to see whether AI can pick up changes in emotions as you go through things. And if you come to this and have a look around, you'll get a good idea about what's really possible these days. Um, I tried to make a version of myself, um, and, well, I didn't really try, I didn't, I experimented, um, so I recorded a voice, a system voice, which you can install on your computer, which is my voice, but I didn't go to the lengths that Apple or Google would go to with a real person three months in a studio every day recording to, to get a real... Uh, enough information to make to make a proper a voice, but I did that, and, and then I kind of um, I tried to make a clone, uh, like with silicon um, of my face, and obviously it only works if someone has the direct proportions of my face, and then they would put on the mask, which means I can only wear that mask, and it would look true. So it's a bit flawed in that way. Um, but I guess the point there was um, kind of pointing out the, the kind of the role that our own biology has in what makes us human and, and what can we leave behind when we enter these digital spaces. Um, we're still bound by that bi biology even if we're trying to exist in this other realm. Um, and, you know, things like uh, the human breath or just these kind of cycles by which are all kind of time-based, durational kind of things that, um, you know, we, we get tired and we need to sleep. But um, I guess technology that we make will probably, in some ways, reflect the humans that are making it too. I'm not sure if we can really, like, conceive beyond that, but maybe you can tell me more <laughs> about that. But, um, yeah, in terms of, I think, yeah, it's interesting to think of what role? So whilst people might project these ideas of physical bodies, I think that's um, that will that will happen because it's just so much intrinsic to our own experience of the world. Well, uh, well in our project, it's called biometric mirror performance under surveillance. So we collect a lot of sensor information while you go through things, and uh, with a you know high-powered neural network, you can actually detect a lot of changes now. So I, you should just come and have a look at it. You'll, you'll, it's, it's easier easier than me trying to explain it. Um, hi, this question is probably quite relevant to your previous question um, and some of the answers, but to maybe extricate something out 
of that. I've been particularly interested in AI specifically, emotional recognition technology and how that can be used um, in a legislative sense, but also in a number of ways. So I've got to make sure I get this in order. Um, and even thinking about this sort of, the word recognition as a sort of recognizing and rethinking emotions via the computer. Um, and I'm quite interested in how this is used in recognizing emotions as an exterior expression of a sort of internal workings of the human body that's really unique to, between different people. Um, and how, harking back to your question around collaboration, how humans may collaborate with um, this sort of particular AI technology which is built on knowledge that's fed into it um, in a collaborative sense. Wait, hold on. Um, yeah, so how could, what can the AI bring to this sort of collaboration with humans? It's not just data or knowledge that's fed into it given its tool is to recognize um, emotions. Okay, so maybe I'll start again. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I mean, first, first of all, one of the reasons we've done this whole installation and this, uh, this project, which is actually part of a series, is about uh, us trying to understand the bigger questions around humanity and ethics. Mm. What actually, you know, with AI, we, we sometimes ask the questions, or oh, what can we do with AI? Maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe the question is, what should we do with AI? And, and that's really part of that. Um, I, I hear some companies are starting to use things like facial recognition as part of their recruitment process. Is that, is that something we want to get into? And to answer your question more specifically, actually, partially, I don't actually know what the AI is doing. So we had a few people through this installation already, and they were very amazed at the results. And they asked me, oh, how does the computer know I've become more aggressive as I go through this? And actually, I, I don't know sometimes why. I mean, clearly, we're comparing different people, we're comparing different readings. Now, I'm not a psychologist, so I can't really answer this question fully. But the neural network is working connections out. That's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> There's an uh, exhibition on until June at Mona um, by Simon Denny called Mine, which I worked on, the augmented reality component, which uh, you take a... It's the context of the exhibition. It's commenting on mining, um, using Mona as a site. It's also underground, so it's kind of subterranean. And Simon Denny's responding to that environment, but also kind of um, it, there's three different rooms. And one of the rooms, you kind of it's like a trade show for a lot of mining companies. But he's commenting on some of these companies that are doing like creating a lot of weird things. Um, uh, to like including having facial recognition for recruitment agencies and there's also like a human transportation device which Amazon patented, patented but they never made it but it, it sounds crazy out of context it's like a cage but but actually it's for within the mining context it kind of makes sense it's so that it protects a human so they can go about doing their job and not not be you know injured or killed or something but anyway it's a bigger topic than, than this panel, obviously, but um, in that we did have some facial recognition and it was not nearly, we had to use a really old AR framework, speaking of technology, because Mona uses really old iPods to, as an interactive guide. So we used this uh, Wikitude, which was from 2009. So we're using like a 
framework that's like 10 years old. Anyway, needless to say, it wasn't very accurate. <laughs> and, um, and, but that was kind of funny, so we can kind of start teaching it by it being like people took selfies and it became their like badge as if they were walking through a trade show on their iPod device. And it would be like, you'd make it a happy expression and it'd be like angry. Anyway, but in the back end, we were able to kind of like go through and try and make it smarter by just saying, no, that's actually not. And what we're actually teaching it is then we didn't probably feed it with enough uh, images of people's faces um, for it to, you know, have enough, have enough examples, I guess, of, yeah, a smile and, and that kind of thing. This is really, I'm really reducing, reducing the, the whole <laughs> technology side of it here, but... Um, it's kind of good to get a snapshot of where things are actually at. Sure, it's like really sometimes scary, but I think there's still, you know, there's a lot of um, refining with this technology before it becomes truly scary. <laughs> uh, first of all, thank you. For all the to all the speakers, I just uh, had to write down my questions on a piece of receipt here. Uh, I, I just uh, remember you guys talking or comparing uh, the notions around video games and video and literature and movies, and I thought that was a very funny comparison because I remember listening to a psychological uh, like a psychological podcast, uh, and he mentioned about a stand-up comedian who talked about comparison between video games and uh, literature and video and movies and saying that uh, you know main difference between that is that you know a movie or a book will never halfway through judge you and saying that oh you're really bad at reading this book or oh you're watching this movie totally wrong but a video game would always consistent consistently like judge you uh, regarding how you act and I guess the main sort of like component there is the difference of entertainment and interaction. And I'm just, and given that you've been also talking about AI and, you know, um, computer learning is that the newer games that we know today online, they will, they have different factors of tracking your, your actions to then again you know, uh, download your data based on those actions. And I'm, and I'm just, I guess my question is, what are your thoughts around that kind of interaction uh, in contrast to consuming media in a one-sided uh, communication, which would be like a movie or a literature, like, or a book that would just be basically someone pouring their thought to you compared to a game where you're actually giving a lot of data to the game or that platform. So there's an area called affective computing, and uh, that actually is trying to address exactly this issue, which is uh, responding to the emotions of the user and then presenting perhaps information or whatever it is in a different way. I mean, the simple example would be you read a document and the computer detects your board, so maybe it's presenting you the information in a different format. That's sort of where this started. And it's getting more and more extensive. A bottleneck so far has been the human language. Computers are not very good at uh, dealing with language. But I can tell you this is getting much better now. 
So uh, perhaps you'll see more of a step towards this very soon. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, one of the games I was thinking of when I spoke before about having gotten a PlayStation for the first time in 15 years um, is called Life is Strange 2. And um, I don't know, does anyone know this game? Life is Strange 2? Yeah. It's, that was what was like really shocking to me. So the story, two um, Mexican-American brothers who just by a sequence of events and choices that they have to make that only people in their kind of predicament would have to be making um, led them you know, into quite a, um, a difficult path. But um, yeah, to your question, it's kind of interesting. I guess in a game space, it's like that, that for me was mirroring, I guess it's how, how far is this world trying to be the world, the real world, and how far is it a game world, and what's my separation and understanding, like Grand Theft Auto, for example, people go around, you can punch someone and no consequence, but um, like that's a dangerous tipping point, I guess, like people will quickly adjust to that world and behave accordingly, I think. Um, I'm super interested in, in, yeah, and, and all the kinds of things you could learn and how that could be useful in a non-entertainment sense. But yeah, it's, a, it's pretty, pretty weird, like, the kind of decisions that you'll make in that space, knowing that there's not any, like, IRL consequences. <laughs> and yeah, it's, I feel like that's, yeah, that's, there's a lot of other things kind of, I think of, um, connected to that kind of, and the ethics related to that, um, thinking of um, like sex robots and that there's like a podcast about, I don't know, this is, might be going too deep for this panel, but um, sorry if it is. Uh, just like this, I heard this podcast about um, like the possibility of child sex robots, which is a real like weird zone um, and the ethics around that. So it was like uh, someone that worked at MIT, I think, in ethics and trying to deal with and write appropriate legislation for that existing. It's, str it's really strange like to start getting into that territory. So I don't know why I just brought the level. <laughs> so I brought it down. But like that is it's pretty extreme. But I mean, it's pretty extreme, right? I mean, how, how do you... Yeah, but apparently, you know, like anything people think of anything and make it if the technology and it's accessible. So, um, yeah, tricky, I think. <laughs> Hi, thank you. Um, I am interested in asking um, the panel if through their practice they have come across um, a point where technology has uh, created something novel or that is perceived to be novel um, and in particular with artificial intelligence and neural networks and things like this where there are behaviours that are surprising and that haven't been seen before among humans um, and if um, the folks on the panel believe or have had some insight into whether there is something unique about human creativity versus a machine presenting something novel. Um, yeah, have, 
have there been any insights um, through your practice on that idea? So I actually think the goalposts are shifting all the time. When I was young, I always thought, oh, if a computer can be the world chess champion, that must, that must mean we have real intelligence, right? And then, of course, it happened, and then everybody, ah, oh, that was easy, right? And, you know, so there's that something a little bit, whenever the computer does it, it's not clever anymore. Okay. But having said that, um, I used to work in uh, magnetic resonance imaging, MRI. Uh, in fact, I was working in Nottingham where the uh, technology was invented and there was a Nobel Prize for it. And we tried to tune the machine to produce better pictures. And there was a particular setting. It had to be between 1 and 6. And the question was, what's the optimal value? And then the computer said 6.5, the AI. And all the technicians said, oh, that doesn't make any sense. You're going to break the machine. And we tried it out, and it was actually better. So it does happen. Um, I don't know, know the answer to the question, but um, just one example. Um, the Central Academy of Fine Art in Beijing, um, they had a folk art department, which became the experimental art department, which is now the School of Experimental Art. Um, and artificial uh, AI has become one of the key kind of um, areas within um, a key stream, science and technology related stream, a research area that they're looking into. Um, and the head of the, the, the school, um, very well-known artist who's been, um, you know, working, you know, uh, has a high profile as a contemporary artist uh, for a number of decades now, Cho Jie Jie. Uh, he's been working with Microsoft and a, um, a, a Microsoft-developed bot called uh, Xiaobing, um, uh, and they've held a, uh, an exhibition recently of AI-generated um, uh, artworks at the uh, Art Museum of the Central Academy of Fine Art. But um, amusingly, they also entered a, an artwork generated by this um, bot um, into the um, uh, entry-level exams. You know, the entrance-level exam is hugely competitive, and it's a standard kind of thing that people have to do. Um, and they entered uh, um, a work under the name of uh, Yuan Xiaobing, I think. Um, anyway, no, no one spotted the difference that it was, you know, by a, by a bot, it was accepted kind of into the Central Academy of Fine Art. So it's not necessarily better, but it's a kind of interaction. I think, yeah, it depends what form it's coming in. Like, I'm thinking of if someone's telling me a story, I'm kind of generally interested in who's telling the story. Um, if maybe in a, yeah, so if I'm not asking that question, I guess that question just changes my whole kind of context for like receiving the artwork or information or whatever it is. Um, I, in my little experiment with trying to create my voice, I found some funny words that just seemed to be like, there's like so many words that were just very like seriified. And then occasional words would just be like, bang on, like, but I never said the word. And I was like, what the fuck? So it, it's, that's kind of weird. Um, I think I'm super curious in that voice technology, being like a singer and a vocalist, um, and just like keep on, keep, keeping on trying the current tools um, to see, because I think that's particularly scary, like the fake, the fake news kind of potential, even though it's quite, you know, they get voice actors at this point. 
I think Adobe did a presentation of where the technology is at with being able to record people's sentences and it's still pretty far off as far as I'm aware. Um, but yeah, keeping an eye on it because I think that's, that's because it's so obviously wrong and incorrect when it is, it's just really funny when it kind of lands and you're like, oh. Um, and also another weird situation, I was once working with a voice artist to make an audio game and then I realized that he'd also recorded for Mac and so his voice was in like the list that you can choose on your system voice for Mac. And I was like, I could just have got his, no, no, it was quite different. <laughs> No, he, he's like the best voice artist, one of the best in Australia. But um, yeah, I think those ones are like the, the really immediate, obvious failings or mistakes that I find that pretty interesting and exciting. And yeah, that's what I like. Wonderful. Could one. you identify Lu Yang's voice? Could I? No. But it reminded me of Chris Marker. I don't know, does anyone know Chris Marker? Chris Marker was an interesting artist. Um, yeah. He died in his 90s, but always working with new media kind of technologies and stuff and working with voice in this kind of way here. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is all that we have time for this evening, but Feedback Loops is open until March 22, so go check it out if you haven't already. Thank you, audience, for your wonderful questions. They were fantastic, as predicted, and please join me in thanking our fantastic panel for tonight.